Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to what will be the final episode of Headstrong Season You're listening with me, Louis Strong, and I host Headstrong. This is a podcast that I started about two years ago to try and get the listener to understand what it means to be headstrong. And I do this by engaging with a variety of individuals from all walks of life who are in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and their careers and what headstrong means to them. To me, it means to believe in yourself, to talk about your vulnerabilities and reinforce your self-worth. Now, on this episode of Headstrong, I was joined by the magnificent Simon Pegg. Simon and I were in Slaughterhouse Rules together, and so I've known Simon for about five years now, and it was so kind of him to come onto the podcast. We had a chat about his time on a variety of projects, getting into acting itself uh, and how important Stratford was to him growing up. We also talked about some of the times where he's not felt so great and had to deal with the word addiction and what that's done to him and his own mental approach. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of Headstrong. This is a quick shout out as well to Rural Rock who are sponsoring this episode. I really appreciate their support and also all their support to Simon it seemed a match made in heaven. Rurok, a helmet company helping Headstrong. Absolutely magnificent. So if you want to go check out all their skiing helmets, go check it out on Rurok. They're on Instagram, Facebook, and of course their website. Simon, thank you very, very much for joining me on Headstrong. I really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with me today. It's nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. It's been a, it's 
It's been a while. Yeah, when was it? It was like 2000 and... Uh, when did we do Slaughterhouse? 2000 and... Um, oh, I don't know. 18? <laughs> yeah. No, it was... 17. It was 18. 17, oh. that's right. Yeah, it was 17. Jeez Louise. God, yeah. But I mean, we, it's a very different time now that we're talking. Where, where am I talking to you now in uh, this, this third lockdown? Uh, I'm at home, sort of um, in uh, rural Hertfordshire, and um, I've been here, you know, um, I was away shooting in Norway and Italy before Christmas, got back in November, and I've been here ever since. Well, I suppose that's all right. I mean, since you're, I mean, you're quite, a, quite a home man now. Um, everything that I do know about you, you very much enjoy being at home. And since March, I do. And since March um, kind of happened and, and the whole lockdown scenario, those 12 months then, you've probably quite enjoyed that time, I imagine. H- have you? I have. And I think what I did with the first lockdown was I, um, I wrote, and actually with Crispy and Mills, who you know. Yeah. And um, we've been working on something together. And we were looking down the barrel of a fair amount of writing anyway. And the lockdown sort of, in a way ended up being conducive to getting a lot of work done because it became part of our daily way of staving off the, you know, the potential boredom and monotony of lockdown, you know. And so having something to focus on was really important. And and I actually really enjoyed the first lockdown because I was very productive, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, it was difficult to find that balance. I, I know that I found the balance quite difficult because I... And also it might have been very challenging as well because you do spend a lot of time away from home, but I imagine you actually incredibly, you know, loved the times spent with your daughter and your wife and the dogs. of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, oh, you just find my Instagram. <laughs> of course. I mean, I'm, we're going to talk about your Instagram. Don't you worry. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I do, I do relish being at home. And one of the, one of the difficult things about, our job is 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 obviously sometimes prolonged periods away from loved ones because the work necessitates it. But and I and I and I always because I've got a young daughter, she's eleven, and and children change so quickly that you can be away for a matter of weeks and you come back and you notice the change in them, you know. And so you're always conscious when you're away that you might be missing out on something, and that's. Um, that can be a bit of an emotional burden sometimes. So I do relish being at home. I do love traveling, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting when you, I I was listening to some podcasts earlier in the year, listening to you, how you interact with your daughter. And it's not just necessarily, you know, phone calls or FaceTime. You you were doing it through uh, Fortnite, I think. And, you know. I think it was Minecraft, although we've just got, We've just got into, um, she got an Oculus Quest 2 for Christmas, which is the <laughs> virtual reality headset. And um, we've been playing on that quite a bit. And then uh, we realized that if I have one as well, then we can actually meet in the virtual space. You know, when I'm away, we can actually, it's like Ready Player One, you know, it's the, yeah. we can meet in the Oasis. So I got myself one as well. So next time, when I'm in Abu Dhabi, if the uh, firewalls permit, then we'll meet up in um, in a couple of games, shoot some zombies together. I mean, I, I've just got this kind of image there of like the, the the hotel door being like left open and you wandering out, and then someone like, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> it is weird. I, I must admit, I mean, the, my first virtual reality experience was sort of at the Trocadero in the nineties, and it was very very rudimentary. But now, I mean, it's totally immersive and amazing, and um, I'm really quite enjoying it. So. Yeah, we'll see how that goes when I'm away. 
I've never, I've never really um, done any of that virtual reality stuff. I think I need to get into it. So I bet it's so much better than exactly is what you were saying. Yeah, um, it's shockingly realistic. I mean, you, you know, because your brain, your brain is your, your sort of amygdala response is always slightly ahead of your rationality. So things that might frighten you on a on a on a reflex way will get you in the virtual space because the, the first thing your brain thinks is ah! before you can go, it's not real. And yeah. um, so it can be pretty thrilling, you know, particularly, I mean, you can get motion sickness quite badly really? if you go on like r- roller coasters and stuff. Yeah, because your your brain thinks it's moving. So it's just tricking your brain. Yeah, yeah. And and the reason we get sick with motion sickness is because the, the brain thinks we've been poisoned because one of the symptoms, one of the symptoms of um, being poisoned is is the feeling of movement without moving. So that's why people get sick in cars and stuff because your brain thinks you've been poisoned and so tries to expel all of the toxic stuff it thinks is in you. It's fascinating, I think. That, that is really interesting. And that explains my car sickness. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I was delighted to see that in December you joined the another reality and that of Instagram. I did, yeah. Um, I was curious. Did you have a private Instagram before that? I did, but it was like... It's such a different um, game. Like I had about a hundred followers. It was just family and friends, mm. and um, it was generally for kind of keeping up with people. You know, it was like having a mini, mini Facebook page. I guess I don't have a Facebook, but um, but I never experienced it on the level that um, of having a public account. You know, and so when that when that happened, it, it all sort of changed and was became much more. Um, um, immersive, particularly during lockdown when there's not much else to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was really excited to see that you did join because it's really giving a, given an interesting insight into a a lot of the projects that you work on, b a slight insight into more of your life and specifically the dogs, miniature schnauzer. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, uh, got a couple myself, so that's always good. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's what. Why did you feel now is the time to join Instagram apart from boredom, or was it that? <laughs> No, it wasn't. I was away. My sort of publicist has mentioned it a few times because it's quite a good way of, I mean, I've always been a bit conflicted about the kind of profile it gives you, whether that's, that's appropriate for someone who wants to, wants people to believe that he can be different people to, to people, for people to get to know you too well personally can sometimes be detrimental to actors. Now that's always kind of been the reason I haven't done it, but then I just thought, ah, oh, screw it. Why not? And um, I was in Venice and I was working with uh, one of the actors on um, Mission, Pom Clementie F. And, and um, she, she's got an Instagram and we ended up making this little film together. And, and um, I saw that she, all the fashion houses are always giving her stuff. And I thought, wow, you know what? If I get an Instagram, maybe I'll get some free shit. <laughs> <laughs> so far, I just get like a, like a snowboarding helmet, which is fine by me. Sick. <laughs> hey that works i mean i was gonna say as well it's interesting because as you say you are catapulted into this uh and, and almost a new world by having hundreds of thousands of people following you and seeing what you're actually doing do you feel a pressure to maintain a presence in the public eye like that then and is that what you see social media is for or is it more for actually promoting the work that you're doing no well i have a i have a twitter i was on twitter for a long time mm. and then I, and I, I got quite a lot of followers and then i sort of left around 2015 because I I wasn't entirely I didn't entirely like myself on it. I felt it made me very available at a time when I didn't feel like I wanted to be. Um 
And there were things about social media that, that kind of irked me. And I'd see behavior in people that I like and love that kind of got on my nerves a little bit. I, I think, you know, the, one of the things was when people die, then, and people, you know, feel like they want to pay tribute to the person, particularly, obviously, always with, with, with famous people, they'll always um, link this person to them in some way. And, you know, say, say someone's died, instead of posting a picture of them and saying, you know, I'll miss them, they post a picture of themselves with that person. Mm. And it's, it's so much about making it about you. It, it, it is a very sort of selfish media. It's a very self-centered media. It's supposed to be. And I used to, I used to kind of, I used to be really conflicted about that. And, and I still am, you know, I, I when Larry King died, you know, I, I thought, oh, I, I, I got interviewed by Larry King. Maybe I'll post a picture. And then I thought, well, don't, because that's just you making his death about you. And that, that kind of thing used to trouble me at night. <laughs> but now, I don't know, I just felt like, now oh, what the hell, you know? It's kind of, I've got all these photographs of, of stuff that are kind of cool and um, people seem to appreciate it. So I, I kind of took the plunge. So late to the game. <laughs> so late to the game. Hey, but you're catching up. You're catching up. Yes. Heavy, heavy well, at the content moment, and I like it. At the moment, I'm not feeling a pressure, particularly because there's lots of stuff to put on. I do, like with the dog walks and stuff, I was doing them quite a lot at first. And, um, and then I realized that, oh man, this is like writing a comedy sketch for every single day. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, and I've, start, I've recently started to drop videos about myself being partially cybernetic which has been quite fun um but i don't know we'll see how it goes <laughs> yeah definitely i was gonna ask you i'm very curious to know what your definition is of the word celebrity i feel like celebrity as a definition is obviously you know is someone who is celebrated to a degree i feel that the notion of celebrity is an interesting thing because for me, I feel like it is a byproduct of my job or um, it's something which happens possibly as a result of what I do. It's not what I do. Like when people say, oh, you're a celebrity mm. to me, I, I kind of bulk a little bit of that because I feel like, well, I'm, I'm not a celebrity. <laughs> I said so up myself. I said, well, I'm an actor and a writer. And you know, particularly when it gets shortened to, you know, celeb, which has become this weird passive aggressive term for people who I think overestimate their own famousness or their own importance in the world. So celebs initi- uh, 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 immediately sounds faintly derogatory. And um, I, I, I kind of struggle slightly with the notion of, of being seen as in it just for that, just to be famous i don't i don't not like that side of it and and it, and, it, and it can be very fun and you know it gets you free snowboarding helmets if you're lucky but um <laughs> it's not it's not why i i do this job you know i do this job because i like it and i can do it well exactly as you say it's it's not that is not your job and that it's just that's why i was curious to ask what what you saw it as because i know that you see yourself as definitely not that but it's just that there are people in this world that's you know, even children growing up now, that is their entire aim. What do you want to do when you're older? I want to be a celebrity. That's not a job. Oh, I know. Yeah. And that's, it's that's, crazy. that's what's tragic. I think it's because the notion of celebrity has become, has become so much more accessible. And in that respect, sort of diminished slightly in terms of its initial 
definition. Like back in the day when when you had movie stars and TV stars and you know getting into getting onto those um, platforms was really difficult. You know, it was rarefied air if you were you know, a big TV uh, personality or particularly movie stars, you know, they only ever were seen on the big screen. And in that respect, they were celebrated because there were these kind of sort of untouchable, this, this bizarre kind of, um, I don't know, royal family of, 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 of popular entertainment. But now because the, because we can all be on television very quickly, very easily. Now we can get on YouTube, you know, the, 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 notion of, of what it is to be a celebrity has changed and it's become more democratized by um, technology. And so um, I guess that's why it might wear thin with some people. No, of course. I mean, now you are on Instagram and you are posting photos, but of course, photos on Instagram are just merely, you know, a snippet and an expression of the reality that you actually do find yourself in. But yeah, how, where do you draw the line yourself on, on what you do kind of post in terms of content on social media because you are a private person though as well mm. you know because where do you draw the line and how do you find that balance between online and what you show and actually your real private life i think the dogs are a nice way of kind of giving a little bit of 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 sort of myself away but you're not going to see pictures of my family or or my daughter or anything like that or you know uh, there's a there's a line which i think is it's fairly easy to to identify where where Mm. stuff stops being everyone's business you know i mean some people are absolutely fine with that and will will happily post pictures of their family life and stuff but i i just feel for me that's a little too far it was when i was on twitter a few years ago myself and i knew that i was far too addicted and you know i obviously have zero following anyway and i got to the point of posting things like what i was eating and you just think actually who the hell gives a shit (laughs) That's not what it's for. It's strange though, isn't it? It's, it? It is a bizarre kind of companion. You know, it's like a sort of artificial friend in a way, social media, because you can get, you can look to it for validation and support. You can look to it for company, you know, and, um, and yeah, if you're on your own, you're sat on your own in a restaurant and you're eating something nice and you, and, you, and there's no one to say, hey, you can look at this, you know, avocado toast is amazing. <laughs> you, you, you can always take a picture and, and send it out into the world, not knowing, you know, who, who's going to see it or who gives a shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like having my own Jarvis from uh, Avengers. Exactly, yeah. It yeah. is, a, you know, that, that's very true, actually. It, it is a strange kind of hive mind, particularly Twitter. It's a very, very sort of rudimentary AI in a way because it, it, it has emotions, you know, and and there's outrage and there's, there's empathy out there and there's anger, lots of it. And it's all there to access and you can choose which particular stream of, of, of emotional response you, you specialize in, you know, you can get in there and just fight all day long if you want, you know, yeah, I don't want to talk about social media for the whole thing, but it's true because depending on what day you post something, the reaction might be completely different to another day. And you don't know, like the events that have occurred that day as well. It's bizarre actually how, you, how it actually happens like that. I got, I got into, not into trouble, but I was still on Twitter back in 2015 and I was in Vancouver shooting Star Trek. And, um, and there was a a t-shirt shop in Vancouver called Bang. And it, it's, it sells amazing kind of 
sort of vintage t-shirts with you know cool logos and stuff and i tweeted something about oh, i've just been to bang it was great kind of thing and then immediately didn't the, the boston bombing had just happened oh. and people were like how dare you say bang <laughs> it was so strange and so kind of wait, wait wait a minute wait a minute i didn't even know that had happened i wasn't even aware that had occurred but people oh, are so word. quick to want to kind of you know jump to conclusions almost yeah yeah that's interesting i mean so I, simon i usually do these podcasts in um chronological order so i'm going to jump back now a little bit um because i i'm curious because i know that you love your music and i'm curious as to where music fitted in from an early age because i know your father was a jazz musician mm. was jazz a big part of your uh, childhood then when you were growing up or were you into other music no, not really. My dad was more, he was in a show band when I was a kid. So he was playing a lot of the sort of the hits of the time. And um, it's only as he's got older and sort of been able to relax into a slightly more personal milieu for his music that he's kind of, um, you know, been in a jazz band for the last 20 years, I guess, but if not longer. But but yeah, no, I, I grew up around musicians and music people and, and my dad was always playing me various tunes and stuff we lived in a music shop for the first five years of my life so um i was kind of around it physically then as well and then um yeah and my mom liked her music as well she liked a bit of john denver still play rocky mountain christmas every year without fail <laughs> um and then as a, and then as a teenager you know it was kind of that was what we used to do on the weekend we'd go into town and we'd go to record shops and i was at sort of 13, 12 to 14, I was a break dancer. And then I became like an indie kid at 15 and discovered the Smiths and the Cure, and which I'm still flying the yeah. flag for to this very day. Um, and then, you know, sort of became a goth. So, so music in, has sort of defined me in many ways over the years. That's interesting. And of course, music is very tightly, tightly entwined with, with performance itself. Where, when, did, when did performance kind of cross over? Because you, I know that you spent a lot of time in Stratford which I love. Yeah. yeah. You know, when I've been to Stratford, I always walk down there and I just like try and think back to the back hundred, hundreds of years, hundreds of years. And I just walk down there and I just immerse myself and I think, how cool would this be? Just yeah. thinking about what it could have been. But yeah, when, when did performance then um, kind of become actually part of your mainstream life? Well, I guess because if my dad was the music guy, then my mom was the, the sort of the, the purveyor of, of the dramatic arts because she was involved in sort of amateur drama and mm. um it was a big part of her life and so i would often go down to the local theater with her and hang out it was like a social club as well it was a big big thing in those days the the, the local drama group you know they put on a big show every every year and it would sell out and they'd have reviews in all the papers and stuff the local papers and so that that kind of became quite habitual for me was to, was to be around the theater and i enjoyed acting from a very young age from you know school plays and and I, I didn't I didn't actually realize that I could do it as a career until I was about 15 and I I found out about a course the one in Stratford-on-Avon which offered up theater studies a level as a main sort of block option usually theater studies was in that third a level bracket where you do maths and, and physics and then there was that where photography and media studies and all those ones are. But this course allowed you to do it kind of as a as one of the defining um, subjects on the course. And so I managed to, my mum managed to get me a grant from the village that I lived in. And I went off to this 
this college. And that was when it was like, okay, now I'm going to be an actor. That was the career switcher then? You, you, you thought you could actually make money out of this and, and see it as your life? It, yeah, it never occurred to me that I'm, I could do the thing I liked to do the most as my job. I mean, that just, I was from Gloucester and Gloucester didn't feel like a particular sort of wellspring of opportunity. And I, I was going down the career route of thinking, well, I'm gonna go, I've got to do this. I've got to be a vet or a physiotherapist or something which has a name. And it's sort of, you know, both those jobs are extremely, um, were a, a high bar that I was reaching for when I was thinking about it. But mm. I suddenly thought, you know what, maybe I can do that, the thing that I like to do as my hobby. Maybe I can get paid for that. And that was a kind of epiphany because it felt like the best thing I could do, you know. And there's a million routes into this industry, all, all of their own difficulty. But I'm, I, to be honest, all of them are very difficult, to be fair. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but where were you mentally when you were trying to break into the industry then? Because you have this, this dream and this, you have certain goals when you're, when you're starting out. So your first goal, I imagine, was getting into that course. Achieving that, the next goal would have been start obtaining credits, small roles, etc. But where were you mentally knowing that, you know, you wanted to sustain this for the rest of your life? That's quite a big, daunting challenge. Yeah, I think the, the after, I, after I graduated from Stratford, I, went, I decided to go to university to study drama, to theatre, film and television there, as opposed to going to drama school. Mm. Now, that was because my tutor at Stratford sort of suggested it as a route and I'm, I'm glad that I did in a way because it gave me a more sort of um, theoretically grounded um, approach to everything. I think it equipped me to be a writer as well as a performer and, and a producer and all those things. Um, but whilst I was there at Bristol University, I kind of became a little bit disenfranchised with everything. I was, I, when I was at Stratford, I wanted to go perform at the RSC. At Bristol, you're learning a lot of the kind of political... Um, the, the political situation when it comes to the arts in the UK and generally and, and art as a weapon and art as a means of protest. And I started to feel like, you know what, I don't particularly want to just graduate from here and then, you know, try and get an age and, and just wait for the phone to ring. So, and I'd started to get interested in stand-up comedy at university, which felt a little bit more revolutionary, a little bit more, um, gave me a little bit more autonomy as a performer, and and I thought, oh, this is this is what I'll do. I'll be a stand-up, always with a view to going back into acting. But I'll be able to get out there and say my own thing and do my own thing. And so that's what I did for about four years, five years after I graduated from Bristol. I was a full-time stand-up comic, and it wasn't until I sort of got seen by Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews, who just were just off the back of Father Ted, and were putting together this sketch show that um i really started to i've done a, i did a couple of small things sort of 95 96 but then um then started to head in the direction i wanted to head comedically at least yeah absolutely it's difficult finding your your feet as a comedian i imagine i'm far far from that because you want to you want to talk about everything though don't you really anything that bugs you anything that you enjoy and then you want to work with your friends as well it's so difficult to really find that that that, that narrative as a, as a comedian i imagine yeah it's people always say you know i'd say 99 percent of the time that i mention being a stand-up people go oh that must be so hard <laughs> and the, the fact is it it's hard if you walk out on stage terrified and have nothing to say 
But if you go out on stage with a certain amount of confidence, and confidence is about 75% of it initially, um, if you can back that confidence up with some genuinely good material to keep that going, it's, it's a brilliant job. It's a lot of fun. And yeah, you'll have nights when you're a bit off your game or the audience isn't great, but they're not that frequent. And going out, it's a very immediate form of gratification that you get. You're immediately validated. It's the, it's the crack cocaine of performance, you know, because as a film actor or a television actor, you don't get the validation until a long time after you've done the thing. As a theater actor, you get it, but it's, it's quiet and comes at the end of the show with a round of applause, unless you're performing a comedy, obviously. But with stand-up, it's just you and just the audience, and you are, you are proven, you know, worthy or not, the second you open your mouth. And it's kind of, it's like extreme performance. And I think it takes quite a sort of um, arrogant, sort of slightly selfish person to do it, you know. And I know some lovely comics. They're all lovely people, but there is that in them. It has to be about them, you know. No, Sorry, of course. That's <laughs> oh, it has to be. Um, so I'm very conscious that I've got very limited time with you. So I want to, um, I want to fast track, not skip, not 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 uh, denying the importance the of those those parts of your career. But I want to fast forward to um, to talk about the Cornetto trilogy. Yeah, and I want to talk about first of all, how important is it for you throughout your career? Because you have worked with a lot of the same people throughout your career. How important is it to have um, your own team, I suppose? Not even team as well, just people that you can trust and consistently rely on when you're creating the work that you want to be involved in. How important is it to have that kind of group of people? I think it's vital. And I think, you know, the best thing you can do as an artist, um, particularly if you're in a collaborative art, like performance, um, is to gather the people around you who challenge you the most to bring out the best and you have the, you have the most simpatico with um because they will make you better you know and I, I feel like you know with edgar wright you know i just found someone who was like a kind of a soulmate and both of us have different strengths and together we were more than the sum of of our parts you know and we were able to um create something which you know i'm very proud of and, and and has sort of persisted as well in the public consciousness so yeah i'd say that's a very important thing to do gather yeah. the people around you who who you like to be with you know did you feel that pressure from um then sean of the Dead into the hot fuzz then because you were, you're working with the same you know edgar again did you feel that pressure on your shoulders that you had to deliver something else or was it actually for you were you doing it for you you know it's what difficult I mean? to say, actually. Yeah, I do. I, 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 we did. It did feel a little bit like the second album because you know, with Shaun of the Dead, we put in everything from our everything that was in our brain at the time, you know, and, and that included stuff from our childhood, from being into zombie movies and stuff. Hot Fuzz was was difficult because it wasn't about us, you know. Shaun was kind of me in a way, and a mixture of me and Edgar, and and with Hot Fuzz, it was a world that we had nothing, no knowledge about. So we had to go out and research it and, you know, we knew we had to get it right. And, um, and so like the first draft of the script was like 280 pages or something ridiculous like that. And, um, it was a much, yeah, it was, it was gigantic, but, but we, we just had to kind of whittle it down and whittle it down. And, and, um, 
and and get it to a to a shape that felt right, you know. And and so I think it's probably technically, I, I think each of those films has their own. You know, Sean is the is probably the purest, and I think Hot Fuzz is technically probably the best. And The World's End, I think, is emotionally the most mature of all three of them. And and you know, it's um, it's a big thing when you start another script after the last one did well. You always feel slightly nervous about it. Do you go in on a high horse, going, "Yes, I'm riding off the uh, the success of this one"? Or are you going, "Oh my god, I've actually got to live up to that." <laughs> It's difficult. Yeah, depending on being, which mentality you go in with, you go one or two ways. I think if you get, yeah, you can't get cocky. That's absolutely certain. You can't certainly can't ride, rest on your laurels, and assume mm. that people are going to forgive you in any way. If you if it, if it isn't up to scratch, you know, you do have to to. But then Edgar and myself, we would never, we would never try and uh, attempt to do that, you know, because mm. we 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 wouldn't allow ourselves to just coast. We always try and m- make the best version of it you know simon how cool is this job because literally when i when i watch hot fuzz and i watch it a lot it's that it's in the kind of filane bit and you're driving in the car and you're firing guns out the window and i just think that is what a good day at the office that was a fun day it's funny actually my daughter watched watched hot fuzz the other day she just put it on and um i was like oh you're gonna watch this and i was sort of <laughs> sat sort of reading the paper and stuff and I, and but I got sucked into it because I haven't seen it for a while. And I did remember those days. We were driving up and down the back, uh, the sort of private roads on Hatfield Park Estate, just firing guns out of the window at, at James Bond as well. It was like Timothy Dalton yeah. just firing back at us. And it was so, so much fun. It was definitely wish fulfillment kind of stuff. Oh, my gosh. That is just iconic. I wanted to talk to you about Stolen Picture. Because, of course, you know, I'm immensely thankful to you for how much that you and Nick and and Crispian, Henry Fitzherbert um, and all the all these amazing people have done for me. Because, you know, as we said at the beginning, I was lucky enough to be in Slaughterhouse with you. But how how long was Slaughterhouse um, in the making? How long did that take to come to fruition? And how long was Stolen Picture kind of in the making for, for both you and Nick? Well, Slaughterhouse, like Crispian had sent me the, the screenplay. He'd been working on it as, an, for, as a project for an American production company. And it was all set in the, in, in the, in the States. It was called Sinkhole. And, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, and then I can't remember the exact, I'll have to ask Crispian, but, but, you know, it became apparent that it wasn't going to get made over there, but it could be made here. So there was a, a the the trick was to adapt it for the UK to be set in the UK. And Crispian went to Stowe. He had that he's had that experience of boarding school and kind of you know rewrote the whole thing around this idea of 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 it happening to a boarding school and you know the kind of metaphorical um, the metaphor for the country and the class and all this kind of stuff that the film embraced. And that was around for quite a while before Stolen Picture oh. started up. But when we got Stolen Picture underway, it felt like something that that, that we could sort of get behind and, and try and get off the ground as a, as a as a project. And so, you know, that's how we we ended up kind of co-producing it with um, with Charlotte's company. Well, we had Truth Seekers come out already. What's what's next with, with Stolen? Or am I not allowed to know? It's not that you're not allowed to know. I'm not allowed to say. Um, <laughs> we've got a whole bunch of things. You know, we've got a nice slate and we're working with some really cool people. 
And um, we've got a variety of mainly television, you know, because television is really where the revenue stream is. It's not film is very hard now unless you're making huge movies to really make that much money back from. You know, it's 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 so polarized now, the film industry. There's the little independents, which are increasingly going to be shown on streaming platforms anyway. And then there are your huge movies, your Mission Impossibles, your Avengers, what have you, which will always be cinematic events. Although COVID has meant that, you know, Warner Brothers' entire sort of slate is now being on, straight onto a streamer, which is worrying. But um, mm. but yeah, the um, the television shows we have lined up are all very exciting. I wish I could tell you any of them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've got a meeting with Emma, so uh, I'll try and. Oh, cool! Great. As well. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I um, Crispian. The thing that Crispian and I uh, are working on is is a TV project, and I'm I'm very very excited about the potential. For that, because it's something we've been working on since before Slaughterhouse. Um, he came to me with this book after we'd um, finished A Fantastic Fear of Everything, which is the first film we did together. Mm. Um, and we've been kind of playing with it ever since. And it, it went through a process of being a feature film. And then as TV evolved into what it is now, this incredible sort of cinematic, um, albeit smaller screen platform. But, you know, a lot of TV now is like little movies. Or long movies, you know, some some series are like a 10-hour film, which is what TV lets you do. So, um, yeah, we've got high hopes for, for that. How important is it to find that balance then for your own kind of um, platform and what you want to be creating, but then also acknowledging that you are now part of some of the biggest franchises in the world? Because you want to find that balance, although you do enjoy everything that you put your time into, you're probably yeah. more passionate about the ones that you are directly producing, writing, and therefore oh, yeah. involved in even more. How, how do you find that balance? Um, well, it's not like it's one for them and one for me. I, I like doing the, you know, the, the big things. Like Mission Impossible is always really fun. It's a lot of travel. It's a crazy job. It can be a little boring at times just because there's a lot of waiting around um, as opposed to something I'm working on, which is mine, which is much more intensive. But as long as I can do both, you know, I, I want to go off and do those those fun jobs and travel, but I also, and this is becoming more sort of important to me as I get older. You know, I turned fifty last year, and um, and I'm starting to feel like shit. How much time have I got to do all this stuff that I want to do? And so those projects that I'm passionate about um, are even more important to me now. But I don't want to lose sight of the the big gigs as well, mainly because they pay pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> So what, what what is left then for you to achieve? What what you do you have anything left in your in your you know, headlights that you just want to go? Yep, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do some theatre. You know, it's been a long, long time, and I I I, I would love to do a to get a really nice play, and you know, a, 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 with a few actors, and just spend you know a season in the in the West End or whatever, or. or I just love to do some theater. It's been, it's been a long time and I used to really enjoy it. And I feel like I don't give myself the time to do it. So yes, that please. Yeah. I mean, fingers crossed from, from all of us that hopefully we can see some theater. Definitely. In fact, my, I got, I talking of dogs and, and theater, I got a puppy about a week and a half. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is him down here. Oh, created very good. Yeah. And he's called Hamilton. <laughs> named after my favorite musical which is no literally not ironic at all there's the book <laughs> I'm well, such there you a loser. Go. 
Oh, what kind? What breed is he? Uh, he's a working cocker spaniel, and he's he's like ten and a half weeks, and he's literally the best behaved boy ever. Oh. Can't believe it. That's, it's good. such a one. such a wonderful presence to have in your life. I just, you know, those those mornings when I go out with the dogs, um, I just I love it, and I love the kind of un un um, complicated affection that they give you. You know, it's a real. They're very therapeutic. But Simon, for all the good days that we have as actors as well, and this this podcast is rooted in mental health, and I, this is where I really want to, to to talk to you about your own personal battles that you have experienced um, in your own life as well. Yeah. And I, I, I think I'm right in saying that actually, you know, it, it started a long time before you were successful in your career. And, and you know, you, you probably had battles yourself whilst you were at, at university and even before that. Did you... Um, what was that like? You know, um, there might not have always been something quite there uh, mentally um, to get, get over, you know, and uh, the word depression gets thrown around a lot uh, and people's coping mechanisms because they don't quite yeah. understand it. So what was it that you were experiencing, you know, at university and at a young age, first of all, that, that made you think that there was something else going on? I think after I graduated from, um, from Stratford, I'd made such a, an incredible group of friends there like, like I'd ne- friends like I'd never had in my life before. I, I'd left, I kind of left home really to, to live away and had this insane two years from 16 to 18. And then it ended. And I think the abandonment that I felt as a result of that, of that loss of those people, we're all on a WhatsApp group now, by the way, which is lovely. You know, we're still all in touch with each other. But at the time, it was devastating. And I think that possibly triggered a depressive episode in me. And that was the first time in the summer of 88 that I, I experienced depression um, as a kind of, you know, not as a mood, but as a state of being. You know, people often say I'm a bit depressed when they feel sad. And you can understand that because you do feel depressed when you're sad. But the the depression as a as a debilitating kind of, you know, state of being where you can't, you can't wake up and then you can't go to sleep and you just feel like this, this terrible, terrible sense of doom and fear. Um, you know, that, that lasted for about, I don't know, sort of three or four months, I think. And then I went to university and that kind of pulled me out of it because I was in a, a new world and with new friends, but it, it just always, um, it always dogged me. And I think as it started to sort of, I mean, when I look at it now, it's, it's related to stuff in my past, you know, I've, I've since w- worked this through with therapists, which was one of the most um, rewarding things I've ever done actually is to talk through everything. I mean, you know, there are lots of solutions to, to depression, to depressive disorders, you know, a lot of medications, which are very good and, and can balance you out, but it, it really is worth talking through the things which fundamentalize your emotional well-being as you get older because it all happens between about the age of seven and 15 all those core beliefs that we lock in then all of our outlook on life is pretty much what we take into our the rest of our being you know and sometimes those those outlooks are immature and and not right or 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 self-destructive and it's good to find out why you you behave a certain way or you assume certain things about certain people or about yourself but um my the thing is i found it really hard to ask for help and so instead of you know getting it sorted out when i got depressed again sort of in my 20s i just started drinking 
because it was a very quick fix. And as long as the alcohol sort of um, was in my blood, then I would, I would feel anesthetized from how I felt. Obviously, the only problem with that is that you have to stay drunk all the time, you know, and that inevitably leads to alcoholism, which was where I found myself, you know, towards the end of my 30s. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a very dangerous and destructive thing not to just reach out and say, please help me, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there was no switch, I, I imagine, for you, as you say. It's a, it's a gradual build-up of uh, an amalgamation of experiences and things going on that result in, in your actions. Was it, did you see it as almost, almost as a self-prescription, then, uh, drinking? Yeah, totally, yeah. It was like, you know, you feel a certain way and you'll do anything to mitigate that feeling. And, and anything that makes you feel different... Um, you'll just embrace in an addictive way. And that could be anything. That can be exercise or sex or drugs or anything. I, I'm, I've quite, I'm quite an addictive person. I find myself in, in moments of, of vulnerability and depression. I'll get addicted to people. You know, if someone makes me laugh and, and lifts my mood, I'll, I'll gravitate towards them, you know, sort of impulsively and uh, compulsively. And um, that was a good thing. So you have to address baseline kind of mood, your, your baseline emotional state, and ask yourself, am I okay here? Because if you're not, then you need help. If you need to, I always see people, people always say, oh, I had a glass of wine, take the edge off. And I always think to myself, off what? What are you taking the edge off that makes you want to do that? You know, and that's just the odd drink. I mean, it, you know, alcohol isn't anesthetic. And I think that, a lot of people use it and abuse it simply because they want to change their mood. In that use and abuse period then, is there, I mean, of course it does affect your memory, but I have no doubt that you do have vivid memories of certain things. Is there anything in particular that you can remember where you, you were kind of put, in a real, put yourself in a real danger, in a, in a real dangerous position? Um, or was it actually yeah, an I mean, amalgamation of this, this, these experiences? Well, you'd always... You know, often being away from home was was particularly bad during that period because I would be um, lonely as well as desperate. And so I remember being away for the first time, coming over to do Mission Impossible 3 and being sort of stuck in this hotel room in Beverly Hills and, and being so panicky and um, feeling so unwell that I, would, I drank a lot. You know, I drank my entire minibar. And kind of um, because I just wanted to not feel that way. But of course, by the time I came on set to do my scenes, I was kind of a wreck because I was just super anxious and I'd, I'd, I'd been drinking. And, you know, I, I, it was it's so self-destructive because all those all those fixes are so are so temporary. They're so quick. They don't solve the problem. They just, you know, damn it up. And so any time when I, I knew I was in trouble and just kick kick the can down the street by having a pint you know it's um it's not the way to go you're at the peak of your career and you're dealing and battling with this how do you because uh, it almost feels sounds like you, and, and feels like you have to hide it from the professional world and the professional um you know when you go on to set you still have to be that person you know that expects you to deliver this role and you know is um you know you're being paid for yeah. it and, and it's you know many people would kill to 
potentially be in this position, but you're battling yeah. something very, very different. How, how, how was, what was your coping me- mechanism thereafter? Because I know, I know of course, you, you spent time in the prior and that's a massive thing, but what was that switch that made you go, now's the time to make that change? Well, it was because I reached a point of no return. I reached rock bottom. You know, I'd come back from a, a Comic-Con, I think, and um, stopped for a drink on the way back from the airport, you know, before I even got home. And and it was impossible to disguise the kind of the mess I was in. And, and you know, my wife and my friends sort of intervened and they, and they, and I kind of woke up there and, um, and that suddenly having given myself to the prospect of being helped, having admitted that I have a problem being kind of there to solve it, it was a great relief to me. And I felt like I really want to get this sorted now because there's no excuse anymore. It's all out in the open, you know, before I was hiding everything, I'd hide bottles and I'd hide, you know, I'd be one person in front of my family and friends and I'd be another person by myself. And to have all that suddenly lifted was a, was a relief. And it, and, and I, and I kind of decided to, to get things straight. And so I, you know, I, I submitted to this intensive addiction therapy process and, um, and I came out a better person, you know. That's not to suggest that I was fixed in any way, mm. but it, it certainly gave me the tools to, you know, to know how to cope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a man who's been your friend for over 20 years, where did, where did Nick fit in in terms of your, your aid for assistance and recovery? And still, where does he fit in now to, you know, be a coping mechanism almost? Well, Nick's, you know, obviously I've known Nick for only 25 years and we're, we're very good friends. And I think... You know, but then Nick has his own demons. He's had a very tough life and has has had to face, you know, you have to read his book to sort of mm. see the kind of personal challenges he's faced. And so I think we see that in each other. It's men find it pretty difficult to talk about shit sometimes. Like I'll come back from hanging out with Nick and Maureen will say, Oh, how's Nick? How's the family? How's the what's he and I'm like, I don't know. We didn't talk about that. We just, we made fart jokes for three hours, you know? Um, but yeah, it's good to know that I have him, you know, he's, he's kind of like my brother and um, I don't see him as much as I'd like to. He lives, he's in LA at the moment shooting something, but you know, even when he's in the UK, he, he lives down South and I'm up North and we kind of see each other when we're in the office of our production company. But um, yeah, having friends is a very important thing. Friends you can reach out to. In moments of stress as well, then I know that you know you're you're now probably even busier than ever as well. Still with with immense amount of projects on the go, what do you do when that becomes too much? Do you have any other coping mechanisms now to help you help you reevaluate and focus and see see what is important to you? Yeah, I try and be mindful and and you know to stop and be in the moment and. Uh, do a bit of breathing and and be grateful and just keep an eye on myself you know and 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 know that you know like last year like 2019 i had a, a sort of um a reoccurrence of of the depressive disorder and and you know i had to kind of take stock of it again and um and figure out new coping uh, mechanisms to employ and 
you know, it's just about being kind to yourself. I've realized it's, it's about not being too hard on yourself, not, not making sure there's time for you without, without being selfish or, or at the expense of other people. You, you do have to look after yourself uh, because that's where it all begins. So yeah, in moments now I can just say, well, I think I'm having a wobble. Let's do something about it. You know, I have someone I can call. I have good friends. It's a relief to actually say, you know what? I'm not okay. That, and for men, particularly men, they're, they're raised believing that saying that is weak. Asking for help is weak. You know, the, there's a big joke about, oh, men don't read instructions and men don't ask for directions. And it's because they don't like asking for help because to suggest that you can't do something completely by yourself is to suggest that you are in some way not a man. And that's an incredibly damaging thing to believe. And it's probably why there's a huge rate of suicide among men between sort of 30 and 50. It's, um, it's drummed into us and it's, it's not a good thing. So this is a question that I ask everybody that comes onto my podcast. I'm curious to hear what you say. What does the word headstrong mean to you? Headstrong, I always think about Princess Leia uh, mm. because that was always in her descriptions. She was spunky and headstrong. I think headstrong, it's a nice kind of, has a nice double meaning, particularly in relationship to this podcast. Um, you know, headstrong is, can be seen as being sort of opinionated and stubborn and kind of um, unwilling to compromise. But it also has that other definition, which is just to be healthy in your head, which I think is where it, it's more fitting as, uh, as the title of, of, of this show, because, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a positive reclaiming of, of a term like, you know, headstrong to mean something a little bit more um, positive, you know? Well, I it's needed, like, ultimately I needed a pun. Head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that what you're looking for? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but it does work <laughs> yes it does um yeah no i think someone who knows their own mind and is not afraid to to promote it and that is it for this episode and indeed this season of headstrong I just want to extend my thanks to Simon for coming onto the show. I really appreciate it. I think it was a magnificent conversation and he's so very generous with his time and support. So thank you, Simon, to you. And I wish you and your family all the best. I also want to thank you, the listener, for sticking with me if you've got this far. And I hope you've enjoyed season four. I hope you've enjoyed all the episodes and all the guests that have come on. If you have any requests, feel free to drop me a message on Headstrong Instagram or Facebook. I am easily contacted at at Headstrong Podcast. We also have our website, so feel free to check that out. There will be a new series coming very, very soon. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for all your support. And you will be hearing from me very soon. Thank you once again to the sponsors of this episode, Rurock who have been a match made in heaven for this podcast.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.